Welcome to season two of Soul Conversations, the podcast where two Korean adoptees uncover the heart and soul of what it means to be both Asian American and adopted through the sharing of adoptee stories. I'm Benny. And I'm Shanae. And this week we are joined by a fellow Korean adoptee, Nate Campbell. Welcome, Nate. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Doing pretty well. How are you guys? We're good. Doing good. Yeah, thanks for joining us. You're out on the, the East Coast in Charlotte right yep, now. Yep, Charlotte, North Carolina. Living the life down here. <laughs> yeah, what's it like living in Charlotte? You uh, graduated from Davidson. Yep. We had a, a pre-call and just going through that, uh, uh, just getting to know you. But uh, what's Charlotte like? I've only been in the airport. Yeah, Charlotte's, weather-wise, it's, I'd say, the perfect place. Um, I went to school in Davidson, North Carolina, not too far from here, and have been working uh, in the city of Charlotte for the last couple years. So yeah, I've really enjoyed it. It's really growing as a city and I'm seeing a, a lot of people move in from, from other states. So it's, it's pretty good, pretty good state to be in, I think. Yeah. So what would be um, the top three things you would tell a visitor if they were coming into Charlotte to do or where to eat? I think Charlotte has three things, really breweries, dogs, and well, I guess that's about it. If you're looking for a good brewery, see a lot of dogs, take a jog outside, I guess. Uh, Charlotte's, a, Charlotte's a good place. Too. There's a lot, of, a lot of golf. Golf, breweries, and dogs is what defines Charlotte, in my opinion. <laughs> nice. You play golf at all? I know my friends do a lot, though. Yeah. Um, I'm not too good at yeah. golf. We were discussing um, a little bit in our conversation. You're kind of an NBA fan, so you're following LaMelo Ball and Charlotte represents right. uh, the city pretty well the last uh, last season. Excited yep, for that. Definitely. Hopefully Hornets and the NFL Panthers, it's usually tough years. So hopefully there's a brighter a brighter future ahead. You got it, man. Like I, I feel LaMelo could, LaMelo's hopefully going to be there for a little bit and get you to, to some playoff games. Yeah. Hopefully we can get out to a few games and LaMelo stays healthy and – Hopefully, I get a end of the playoffs. Yeah. So you didn't um, you didn't grow up in Charlotte. Uh, where did you uh, Where would you grow up uh, in that yeah, state? Yeah. So I I was adopted from Holt and from Guangzhou when I was three months old. Uh, grew up with a Caucasian parents and a Caucasian sister who's a year younger than me, and in southeastern Ohio, right on the border of West Virginia and Kentucky. So I spent my first 18 years in, in Southern Ohio in a very rural uh, Caucasian community until I went to college in, in Davidson, North Carolina. And what was it like growing up there? Is there a lot to do or is it kind of like a small town? It's a pretty small town. High school only had probably three, 400 kids. And I had all, all white friends. And the only thing you could really do is, is go to the mall or, or go to the movie theater. So. Nothing too crazy in, in Ohio. Did you choose Davidson because it was in a bigger area or? Yeah, so I, I choose Davidson ultimately for football. I played played football as a cornerback for four years at Davidson. And I felt that was the best academic opportunity that also allowed me to extend my athletic career. So did early decision there. Only place I applied and didn't look back from them. Yeah, we were uh, we were talking a little bit about your experience playing football in college. We'll get to that more later. But I only know Davidson from Steph Curry. But uh... yeah, that's the only <laughs> only reason uh, Davidson's on the map. <laughs> so when you were talking before, when you were eighteen, 
you also went through Holt to search after birth parents. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, so I had looked my whole life growing up looking forward to being able to search for my biological mother or family at the least. I kind of didn't really know what the process looked like. My parents had always just told me growing up that once I turn 18, I can search. And I imagined as a kid that it would just magically happen. Everything would fit in the perfect place. I would see what my mom looked like and kind of move on with my life. But once I started to get that age and started investigating a little bit, I quickly understood that the odds probably aren't in my favor. And a lot of adoptees like myself have had horror stories or bad experiences or depression even and in their own searches for trying to connect with their parents. But I, I applied when I was 18. I wrote a letter, sent some pictures, filled out some paperwork, and I got a letter in the mail two months after my, my 18th birthday uh, with a, a letter translated from my mom in English saying that you know, she was alive. She was glad to hear I was healthy and grew up in a, in a good family with, with great parents. And she had kind of just expressed her, I guess, guilt and grief for, you know, giving me up for adoption and wishing that she could have, you know, done more. And shortly after that, I'd, I'd gotten a Facebook request from a random Korean person and happened to be her. So came Facebook friends. I don't even know how she got it, honestly. And then we just kind of started messaging on there. And, and six months later, around May, I was uh, flying to Korea with my family to, to meet her for this first time. So that's kind of how it started. That's crazy. You said that your adoptive parents um, had told you when you were 18 that you could start searching. Did you ever have any conversations with them? I mean, I'm assuming that they were supportive since they had said that you could start searching, but you know, you expressed that you weren't really kind of expecting for your search to go anywhere. Do you know if they shared the same sentiment? Like were they as surprised as you were that you were able to find her and reconnect? Yeah, I think they were equally as surprised, especially with how quick the turnaround was. They I don't really think knew the process as well or the sociocultural like implications of being a, a single mother who has given a child up for adoption in Korea. We can maybe touch on the weight of that for, for the biological parents, but yeah, they were supportive for sure. And you know, my mom was in tears when, when, she, when we got the letter and yeah, it, it just kind of worked out really well. Yeah, so uh, Nate, you uh, also expressed too that you went to Korea for the first time shortly after connecting with your birth parent or birth mom. What was it like flying into the airport in Korea and stepping on that ground? And what was your first experience just meeting her for the first time? Yeah, so we met not at the airport, but at like a train station where we took a train from the airport to meet her. She had... I was in the bathroom. She actually saw my, my parents first. I came out and, and she was there. I was expecting like a meltdown, you know, like crying, running, like arms out, a big emotional dramatic scene. But she, yeah, she was very calm, more of more curious, um, a slight hug and kind of just like feeling my hand, looking, looking at my face 
feeling my arms. Um, so no, no, no tears were shed. Uh, like contrary to what I, I came in thinking, I did you know feel out of place though because I didn't look like everyone in Korea. I found out because I didn't really know about Korean culture, so I had really tan skin, dressed in American styled clothing, American styled haircut. Everyone speaking Korean. I'm speaking English with a with a country accent, so <laughs> it kind of hit me like a couple years later just how much I stick out because, I mean, we went to like a restaurant to eat right after that, and I mean, I I can't use chopsticks because white families don't use chopsticks in Ohio, so you know I have to ask for a fork at the restaurant and need a translator to even say hello. So it was definitely a big culture shock for sure. What was it like having a translator? Did it change that experience? Do you, or I guess, how do you feel like it affected the experience? Did it affect it in any way? Yeah, it did affect the experience. I mean, my mom is a very introverted individual like myself. So she wasn't very talkative, I guess. And the translator did definitely make it uncomfortable especially I mean I can remember a specific time because I I had come into the trip like with a list of questions obviously I'm curious about my mother I want to ask her so many things like personal deep questions but with the translator and your your family around and her family around who are just discovering I existed for the first time then it's hard to kind of generate those questions in a comfortable space like the translator specifically like brought up in front of everyone like is there anything like you want to ask your mom like personal or what are you curious about and I mean I really couldn't I couldn't say anything like I just gotten really shook or shocked and, and couldn't speak it was it was a really it was a feeling I'd never felt before and I don't know if it was embarrassment or or what it was, but it was just really, really uncomfortable. Yeah, I can imagine that that would be awkward. You mentioned that she had other family with her. Did Do you have half-siblings, or is she Yeah. Um, so she, married? She never, she never remarried or had kids. She has uh, two sisters who have children that are around my age, so I have some biological cousins, and her, her parents are still alive, so... I was able to meet her whole side of the family and a biological father was, was never in the picture. She, she was 19 and he was, I think early forties. So she had kind of, this was years later, but when we actually talked like without a translator, um, he never even, I don't think she even told him or like anything about that. So no real idea on the biological father side, but, her family was it was really receptive of her meeting me, even though she just told him for the first time when I was on the way. So thankful that they were understanding of her and and didn't treat her differently. Yeah. So now you spent you know your first trip in Korea. You're flying back to the United States. What's going through your mind when you get back on American soil? You just met your birth birth mom. You're also navigating 
you know, all of these complexities of having your American friends and your adoptive uh, parents, what's going through your mind at that point? The first thing that's going in my mind is I want to go back as soon as possible to see her again. I feel like the first time was not what I imagined it to be. I, I felt, or I left feeling like there was something missing just because there was no personal connection. We never had like one-on-one time and we, the language barrier obviously was a huge factor in that. So since I had zero uh, Korean language experience, I took a few classes in college because I basically flew straight back to college, which is where I met some Korean friends, took Korean class for a year, learned the language on my own and really started to, I guess, research Korean culture to try to assimilate myself to where I could feel comfortable going by myself the next time to Korea to see her and not feel like a foreigner in my own soil, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I thought I would fit right in, look like everyone, and actually feel like a sense of belonging for the first time in my life. But it was actually way more isolated than even being an adoptee in America. So I didn't want to feel that feeling again, which is why I kind of changed how I was living and trying to incorporate Korean culture into my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like since you sort of started and embarked on that journey that you learned a lot about Korean culture and not only Korean culture, but just the sociodynamics and the dynamics socially around adoption in particular, what are some of the biggest either takeaways or the most important things that you think that you've learned over the years? I think as it relates to adoptees and like biological mothers, especially the social stigmas of of being a single mother in Korea and what, what those mothers have to go through, um, the pain they have to, they can't, you know, tell their family because their parents a lot of times will disown them or remove them from the family tree just because it brings shame to the, to the family name. So after talking to my mother, like one-on-one when I traveled back a few times without my family, I, I had realized just how difficult it was for her because she really didn't really didn't have a choice if she wanted to like survive as, as a woman in Korea. And I think I was really able to see the contrast compared to America where there's way less of a stigmatization uh, for single mothers, you know, adopted children. And, and that's something that I was really able to build empathy for because I think a lot of times biological mothers are painted in a bad light as well as like women who made a bad decision while they're young don't have financial support to raise a child and they're kind of just trying to abandon this mistake they made without any care in the world. But, you know, after talking to my mother, you know, it's not, it wasn't necessarily that that was the case. Um, Like she would be descended from her family and, and that's kind of a big lesson that I learned after kind of diving into that a little bit more. Yeah. And we were talking about, um, a little bit about, about your involvement with Holt. Um, you're, you're adopted through Holt and you're connected to your birth mom through Holt. 
you also mentioned you volunteered through Halt and what was the um, driver for the volunteerism and what were some learnings that you got from that as well? Yeah, so I kind of wanted to volunteer with Holt to learn about how transnational adoption is shifting since the time I was adopted in 1996 because I was three months old and my parents just drove to Detroit to pick me up from a woman's arms in the airport and that was kind of it and especially over the past few decades of kind of keeping up with adoption and its processes just seeing how difficult it is especially for the adoptees you know they they basically almost are two years old now before they're even eligible to be you know given to a family the parents have to travel to korea twice the fees are only going up and the older the children are through the process the more they're getting attached to Korea and their, their foster mothers and the more difficult it is for them to like assimilate into their American families. So I know there is a lot of debate on the benefit of transnational adoption from all sides, the Korean government, you know, Korean adoptees themselves because they're being displaced from their cultural identity more or less. And you know, from the government's perspective, everything is about business and money. So the commodification of adoption, kind of all that combined with me kind of meeting my biological mother, having the relationship with all three sides of the triangle, like the adoptee, biological mother, adoptive parents. I kind of just got really interested in how all that kind of interweaves together. Yeah, and um, I'm interested also in hearing, too, you mentioned a few times now that you've uh, seen your birth mother a few times, and you also hit on trying to fit into the Korean culture, and that was maybe more challenging than you maybe anticipated. So how many times have you been back to Korea, and every time that you go back, what has that experience been with, you know, quote-unquote fitting into that that culture, even if you if you did or didn't want to do that, what's that experience been like? Yeah, so I've I've been back five times by myself. My family only went the first time to meet when I was 18. The other five times I flew by myself during vacation of, of school. And each time that I went, I had been able to study more of the language. And like certain things like not trying not to tan your skin. Because people in, in Korea, you know, they're not trying to have tan skin. They're trying to have pale white skin. Or watching a YouTube video on how to use chopsticks so I don't have to use a fork at every restaurant. Or, <laughs> you know, having a Korean-styled haircut or a Korean, a Korean barber do my hair instead of, you know, an American barbershop. Things like that combined with, with learning the language. Um or at least attempting to learn the language at a high level really made each time feel more at home, especially the the first time I went by myself when it was just me and my mother, because she lived alone. I was able to go to work with her because she, she owned a small bar that was kind of open throughout the night. So I was able to, you know, have drinks with her, open up a little bit more, get a bit emotional. And, you know, by the fourth or fifth time, you know, she's not even meeting me at the airport. She's, she's just like, you know, come, come to the house. 
find your way, which now I, I can, I can find my way from the airport to her house and in, in the middle of nowhere without any sort of translator help. I can read the signs, navigate the, navigate the subway. So I feel very comfortable, especially at this point in my life, being able to basically go from the U S straight to her house without any, any real help, I guess I can order at a restaurant without sounding like a foreigner and I can walk, you know, in the crowds of people that are in Seoul or wherever and not feel like someone could point me out as someone who was raised in America. So that's something that I've really tried to embody and I've really been able to, in my opinion, been able to accomplish. You mentioned that the first time you went back by yourself, you were able to open up to her a little bit more. How proficient was your Korean at that point? Because were you speaking Korean to her in order to have that conversation? And is it still difficult sometimes to communicate back and forth with the language difference? Yeah, I would say the first time I went, I was probably at a like a 201 level. So very basic colloquial language, basic conversations. I would still, I mean, to this day, I still have to, you know, pull out Google Translator and type something in because there's just so many vocabulary words. And especially if you're trying to talk about adoption and what had happened when she, what she was going through, what the circumstances were, it definitely is a broken conversation that I wish, I hope one day I can have a full comprehensive conversation um, like the first time I'd went, we had, she had opened a bit about if I was curious about anything, we talked about biological father and kind of her reasoning for going the adoption route. And, you know, she had mentioned how she, she didn't even pick out a name for me. She didn't hold me at the hospital. It was so traumatic and she had a C-section on top of that. So. You know, she had to look in the mirror every day to be to be reminded of what happened. Never told a single person for 18 years that she had a child. And just explaining like how she would she would cry every night thinking about what had happened. She refused to, to marry again, knowing what she had did. And those are kind of the conversations that I was looking to have with her to be able to show my thankfulness and like appreciation for her not only you know giving me up for adoption because it was in the best interest of myself but also for you know being willing to meet me and you know face me as her son and build a healthy good relationship from from that point on so yeah there's still barriers but definitely going pretty good i think yeah then you mentioned something really interesting just by the fact that after going to Korea a few times for yourself, you were able to fit in a little bit more with the other Koreans and maybe they couldn't you know, pick you out of, out of crowd that you were American. We also talked about, quote unquote, playing both races. So when you go to visit your birth mom, you mentioned, you know, having to learn how to use chopsticks, maybe being careful about, you know, not being too tan or maybe having a certain style haircut, learning the language. But eventually you fly back to the United States and, you know, you're going to be maybe not using, you know, chopsticks all the time. You're, you're speaking English again. And you also have your own adopted family as well. 
Um, I'm, I'm just interested and curious to know how do you navigate that duality of, of really embracing the Korean culture, but also having a culture that you grew up with for 18 years without having that much exposure to the other side? Yeah, I think that's one of the most difficult things I've tried to, and trying to blend both identities and cultures. Like, obviously, like when you come back from Korea, meeting your mom for the first time, the first thing you want to do is go, you know, gung-ho 100%. I need to learn everything. You know, I'll move to Korea tomorrow. I just want to learn everything, talk to my mom. And I think a lot of my friends in America, I think, felt the change that I was trying to change, like implement in my lifestyle. And that did make me a bit self-conscious of me trying to compensate for myself or compensate for 18 years of this culture that I didn't have growing up that is a part of me biologically and it did have impacts i mean like when i'm missing christmas with my american family to go to korea i definitely think my mother especially felt you know he's just gonna go to korea never come back home forget about us because he's so intentional with trying to to get this down and especially in uh, in the early years right after meeting her i was trying to like polarize myself towards Korea. But over the past few years, as I've kind of matured a little bit, I think I've found a pretty good balance of being able to recognize, you know, who my identity is as a Korean adoptee, have a healthy relationship with both my American family and my Korean mother. And um, yeah, it it's a pretty good problem to have i guess you can play both identities but at the same time you do have to be aware of how it impacts both sides like my korean mom's asking me to move to korea work here live with her while on the other hand my american family you know who i grew up with for 18 years is terrified that you know they want me to stay in the u.s because you know they want to see me for christmas like things like that are kind of what's hard to balance out. I'm curious, did you ever have, or has there been any conversation or correspondence between your birth mother and your adoptive mother? Like, did they share any moments when they originally met on your first trip out there? I don't think they had any direct conversations to each other. My adoptive mom had written a letter that was translated to her, but they, I mean, everyone was kind of, it was basically a group of like 12 people, my family, her family, just everywhere at every second. So they never really got an intimate conversation. They kind of both just spilled their feelings to me, their side of the story. And I guess expecting me to kind of, relay the information because the language barrier for one, and also it's very difficult um, for both of them to convey those feelings. Um, But they do have very similar thankfulness and appreciation for each other and the sacrifices that, that both of them made to, you know, raise me well and for my biological mother to meet me because my American mother knew that was a very big, 
important piece of my life that I was always look forward to. So they're very thankful for each other. And uh, they both have been able to realize, I think, hopefully how appreciative I am of both of them. Yeah. Nate, we talked a lot about your birth mom, but you also have a, a, a very great perspective too about adoptive mothers as well, including yours. And you empathize and sympathize with them as well, because I think sometimes we often forget that they're making tough decisions as well. And you actually had other mothers come up to you to ask for advice as well. Can you talk a little about that space too? Yeah, I think as an adoptee, a lot of the dark light is shed on adoptive parents because they're seen or I guess viewed as white saviors or people you hear horror stories about adoptees who were abused or neglected and the spotlight's always kind of been centered on the adoptee themselves and getting to know a few other adoptees a lot of their caucasian parents just after kind of hearing my story and my experience have reached out to me with deep levels of anxiety and stress for raising their own korean adoptive adopted kids and you know concerns about am i parenting them right should i even bring up biological families or adoption to what percent in their lives do i try to incorporate korean culture should i have them learn the language should i they'll be like you know i'm taking them to taekwondo we eat kimchi like is this stuff i should be doing should i be doing more and i've really found that Adoptive parents go through a lot, but don't have a voice to express their stress and what they're going through. I didn't realize my own parents, you know, even worried about stuff like that until after I'd met my mother. And especially after meeting my mother, you know, my mom, like she, she would be, you know, nearly crying, scared that now I'm just going to, you know, hop ship and move to Korea and forget about everything. And I don't want that to, like, I I don't wish that she would have raised me any differently because by her supporting me being curious about my adoptive family, um, that's something that I think is is crucial to adoptive parents who are, you know, trying to raise their child. Some children aren't, want nothing to do with it. Some children, you know, want to meet them right now. So I think it's just very important that, um, adoptive parents are very understanding and empathetic for the children, but also, you know, as adoptees, we have to have some empathy for where the adoptive parents are coming from, because I think my, my adoptive parents worried and stressed more about adoption than I did, even though I was the one, you know, experiencing living the actual life on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, they're worried about, are you getting bullied at school because you, you have white parents? Are kids calling you names because you're Asian and we only have a white community, stuff like that, which I never really worried about, but, you know, that's always in their minds. You also talked about almost confronting the misconceptions of trans uh, racial and transnational adoptees. You know, you, you also are working full-time and what's next on the horizon for you? Where do you go from here? Are you still trying to 
visit your mom as much as you can? Are you trying to do advocacy work here? Um, what is your space looking like these days? Yeah, so I've just been working in like corporate America for a little under two years. So I don't have the college vacations and extended time I can go over there anymore. So I haven't, especially with COVID, haven't really been able to flesh out any real plans to go. I definitely want to go as soon as I can since it has been a few years, probably a couple weeks just to you know, make sure everything is going good over there and to keep in touch. Um, but yeah, I definitely plan on, I've thought about going to teach English in Korea just to have a chance to live over there for a while, have a little bit of fun, meet some new people and work on the language. But ultimately I think in reality, I'll, I'll probably, you know, stay in the United States, continue to, to build my Korean and kind of just visit my mother uh, for vacation and hopefully convince her to maybe come to the U.S. one day. I was just going to ask if you if she had expressed any interest in coming here or if you would try to bring her here for a visit. I I wish she could. She's not very good with technology or computers or traveling. I don't think she's even been on a plane. Plus, I think her lack of English really concerns her. And I don't think she even really has a passion to come here or learn, have anything to do with English. She's always just been kind of like, you know, I'm going to be here. Please learn Korean and please come to see me <laughs> because I'll be here. So <laughs> it's a small town where she's from. So, and that's fine. I got maybe if like I get married here one day or something, she'd be able to come. But I'm completely fine with, with going to see her where she's comfortable. Nate, so I got to know, what was your 40 time in college? Oh, my 40 time? We didn't even really run them that much because I had done early decision. I'd say probably around four seven, four six, nothing too fast. I wasn't, you know, FBS, you know, speeds. So probably four seven, four six, <laughs> something around there. Yeah, uh, we'd love to talk to you more about your experience playing college football at, at Davidson because uh, we kind of briefly hit on that. You know, there's not a lot of representation in that sport. But yeah, what was your experience like? there and it sounds like you kind of pride yourself on that um you know we have a lot of identity we discussed about you and this is also something that's passionate for you as well yeah so i mean growing up in an american family i was kind of pushing the sports basketball track football everything but once i kind of moved out of that town since i mean i felt like i was white growing up all my friends were white. they they treat me like you know them i didn't really think anything of it but when I desired to kind of play at the next level, which would require you know going to a different state, most likely, um, I kind of felt uh, a lot of discomfort and embarrassment, even just showing up to you know, college visits or camps where they're recruiting you, just because you know, for one, there's no Asian people there. Two, you know. I'm coming in as a corner. Like I think a lot of Asians are seen like as kickers or nothing or like GPA boosters or something for like a big school. But yeah, yeah and I right. just felt like, uh, I don't know. I, I just felt like that I wasn't in the right place. People were judging me, looking at me sideways, kind of doubting my ability without even knowing who I am or what I was capable of. 
So even though I had confidence in myself, I'd always felt that, especially once I'd actually accepted the offer and played there, you know, the locker room, no Asians, they kind of had their own friend groups. My main friend group was, you know, non-athletic Asian kids from my hall or from the campus. So it was definitely difficult to overcome that, but I did develop a, a great pride in being able to like represent Asian Americans or adoptees in the sport of football and like having my Korean friends come watch the games, like, even though they, they had no idea what, what was going on on the field or how football works, they were able to support, you know, me playing that. And I, that's something I've been really thankful for and proud that I made the decision to, to play, even though I felt so uncomfortable or at like an indirect disadvantage somehow compared to everyone else. Yeah, I know. I played um, a little bit of sports in high school, not, not to the, not the level of being um, in college, but I know that when you play sports, you have that competitive spirit and sometimes you have that chip in your shoulder, but do you ever think about getting into coaching because you have the, that unique perspective or mentor other kids who maybe have similar experiences and uh, provide that perspective, not only in sports, but in life as well. Yeah. I think more, I would say towards life, I, I haven't really had a passion for coaching sports, but I definitely would like to have some sort of role or some program for younger adoptees who are going through their life, either as an athlete or just, you know, someone who sticks out and kind of act like as a mentor, share the experiences I've had with them. Um, but even, I think honestly, like I've done more like, I guess, coaching more or less with adoptive parents who have reached out to me. I try to bring up adoption with other adoptees and their majority of the time it's very surface level. They've never really been interested in in anything related to Korea or visiting or biological families. But I've had like hour hours of conversations with parents about, you know, how they're raising their child, what their feelings are, like what I experienced, how how I can help them, you know, make the best life that they can for the adoptive the adoptive kids. So I think a lot of work with adoptive parents actually would be something I'd be interested in. Because you have this very holistic perspective on the entire adoption triad, when you think about advocacy or you think about reform for the adoption system, what, if any, changes do you think need to be made in order for it to be a better experience for everybody involved? I think the, well, yeah, there's a lot of issues starting with Korea and how society views single mothers and adoption even domestic adoption which korea is kind of trying to advocate for opposed to international adoption with the laws in place today if you adopt domestically you have to register the child on your family tree but then you know corporations like corporate korean life is so based on family and bloodline etc but people are being judged because of that if they adopt. So um, for one, like it's impossible for a single mother to raise a child just because of how they're treated by society. And if they do adopt domestically, then 
a lot of the parents aren't even telling the kids they're adopted because, you know, it's a Korean family, Korean child. So I think there definitely needs to be more support and resources for biological women. I know there are some groups out there that try to provide physical resources for mothers who are are looking to keep their children um, and raise them as a single mother. And I think, like, yeah, I think it's a responsibility from all three sides because a lot of times it's either the biological parents who are painted in the bad light or the adoptive parents. And it's kind of always on the adoptees to, it's always adoptees like us showing our, our dissatisfaction or our resentment towards one side or the other, either the abandonment side of the, of the biological mothers they threw me in the trash. They had nothing to do with me. Like, how could they ever love? How could they have a human and just disown them? There's kind of that narrative without us understanding, you know, the sociocultural implications that they face if they do. Like, they're doing it because ultimately it is best for the child if probably if they're raised with, you know, a healthy you know, two-parent household in America, for example. And then also, I think it's on adoptive parents because there have been a lot of situations where, you know, there's been resentment towards the, the adoptee or neglecting them or abusing or not letting them search for their biological family because they pound into the kid's head that, you know, I'm your parents, I raised you, you know, you shouldn't have anything to do with Korea because they abandon you basically. And I don't think that's right as well. I think, yeah, all three sides need to have a little bit more empathy and understanding, which we really don't have access to as adoptees like in America, because like I said, the adoptive parents don't have a space to voice what they're going through. And we don't have any idea of what Korea even looks like, what the people sound like. So how could we know what the biological mothers are facing? All we can compare that as to as you know single mothers in america which is completely different so i think empathy and understanding would really resolve a lot of the kind of entanglement with with adoption and and the frustration associated with it Mm -hmm. yeah and it sounds like a lot of education too in order to help foster that empathy and understanding it sounds like there's a huge you know piece of information and information gathering and access to that information that's missing as well. Right. And I think like also don't let one bad situation create the narrative for the entire adoption process. I think the intention behind adoption is ultimately for the child, whatever's in the best interest of the child, because it's out of their, it's out of their control, like the situation they're put in. So like the child's, well-being and healthiness and upbringing comes first. Um, but yeah, definitely education, like you mentioned, can hopefully alleviate a lot of the tension, unfortunately, that exists. Just a bunch of different face group or Facebook groups. You know, I'm in some for adoptive parents, some for adoptees, and others that are like advocacy programs for, for biological mothers. And it seems like there's always drama, fighting, confusion, upset, and dissatisfaction, uh, which is really unfortunate. But you know, hopefully, 
hopefully it can progress. I'm personally really appreciative of you uh, joining us today. You know, there's been a lot of views and perspectives that uh, are, are always hard to discuss. And um, we're fortunate enough for, to have someone on that has been to South Korea several times and has developed a very close relationship with the adopted mother. And that's a very unique perspective on having, you know, experience on both sides. So we thank you for oh, having no me No problem. On. Thank you guys for having me. So, Nate, in terms of season two, we really are looking at identity um, in terms of whether we see ourselves as more than just adoptees. You have had such a unique and, I think, valuable experience in the fact that you are in reunion with your birth mother. You have been to Korea. How has that shaped your identity and how do you define yourself as a person now? It's shaped my, it's kind of been a roller coaster of my identity. I think one of the main things that I've learned is, you know, embody the identity that makes me comfortable. Don't try to impress my biological mother. Don't try to impress my adoptive parents. Don't try to compensate for something that I couldn't control. Do whatever, you know, makes me happy, whether that's, you know, 75% Korea, 25% American, whatever. And it's going to always be, you know, shifting throughout my life, wherever I'm at, whether I'm physically in the U.S. or Korea. So, you know, I'm, it was a struggle that I really dealt with and trying to understand who I was and how I identified. But at this point, I can, you know, proudly say that I'm, you know, a Korean adoptee. Who have who I have, you know, an amazing, loving, adoptive family who raised me, and I also have a great relationship with my biological mother. I think, you know, it doesn't have to be so polarized. I don't have to impress either side. I can just, you know, appreciate the circumstances that have fell in my direction, and like I don't like even the word mom was a big deal for me like having essentially two mothers like who do, who do I call mom do I call do I tell my Korean mother like do I call her my American mom in third person like is that going to offend someone but now you know my mother and America's mom my Korean mother's Oma so like you just I just learned to you know do what's comfortable for me don't try to please anyone and just finding that balance takes time and, and growing in maturity, but definitely been a, a great experience and uh, continually trying to shape my identity every day. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Nate, for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate your story and shedding light on a lot of the perspective. And thank you all for listening. And you can follow Nate on Instagram at NateDog underscore 45. Was that your football yeah. number? <laughs> I knew it. Exactly. I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> and as always, you can follow us on Instagram at Soul Conversations. Check us out on our website at www.soulconversationspodcast.com. And feel free to send us an email at soulconversationspodcast at gmail.com. Have a wonderful week, and we will all catch you on our next episode. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.